All right, guys. We got five minutes, but I just want to go over uh, absolutely what the agenda and goal is for this talk tonight. We are lucky enough to get to listen to one of the winningest coaches in college baseball ever, a man by the name of Pat Casey. Extremely, extremely successful college coach in a career where at the D1 level won 900 games. He was, he, let's read, I'll just read this to you. Pat Casey won 900 games at Oregon State as the Beavers head coach from 1995 to 2018, guiding the program to national championships in 2006, 2007, and 2018, and five Pac-10 slash Pac-12 titles. More than 20 of his players went to play at the Major League Baseball level, and more than 100 were drafted by MLB organizations. Case was named the Coach of the Year in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2017, and 2018. He went to the postseason 12 times and made it to the College World Series in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2013, 2017, and 2018. You guys know I can read now. Coach Casey, record at Oregon State in 24 seasons was 900, 458 losses, and six ties. That's a 662 winning percentage. All time as a collegiate head coach, Casey's teams went 1,071, 572. That's a 651 winning percentage. And he coached seven seasons, and it's where I met him when he was at George Fox University or college. Casey's 900 wins at Oregon State ranks him sixth all-time in Pac-12 conference history. So, guys, as you can listen to me, Coach Casey had an unbelievable career. Uh, as a as a head coach, I want to mention a couple people that I know that worked with him for a lot of years. There's a guy named Pat Bailey and Nate Yeski, who's now at uh, Texas A&M. Uh, Pat's big league players that you guys will notice their names: Nick Madrigal, Trevor Larnich, Michael Conforto, Jacoby Ellsbury, Darwin Barney. Josh Osich, Drew Rasmussen, Andrew Susak, and I, I, I know I'm leaving uh, a few names out of guys that have played in the big leagues. But the agenda tonight for you, uh, this is an Athlete 911 Sunday Night Clinic. Our entire agenda, this will be a positive talk about things that Coach Casey feels are important in today's games and helping players develop and anything that has to do with the betterment of kids trying to get to college or pro ball. So I want to start out by introducing to you, Pat Casey. Pat, thank you for coming. 
Yeah, glad to be here, man. Glad my, to be my, here. My first question to you is this. Everyone I've talked to says your ability to motivate is incredible. What are the things that are really important for you and when you're seeing players, guys playing with you, how do you get them motivated today? Well, you know, first of all, I think there's so many elements to that question. Um, you know, I, I, I first would like to say thanks for everybody that's, uh, especially if you're a player, there's so many things people could do. If you're taking the time to, to be on here and you're a, a desirable uh, baseball player, man, that means you really want to be something. Um, there's so many guys in this game that have coached and done such great things. Uh, I wish I would have done um, done it right all the time. It's difficult to coach. You don't do everything right. You don't uh, you don't always motivate everybody properly. Sometimes you you, you know you let your competitiveness get in the way. But um, I think the one thing about motivation is um, is the fact of that it comes from within and. Uh, I think that, that my job as a coach to motivate would be for helping someone find that inner fire that lies within each and every one of us. You know, that the unimaginable potential that lies within the human spirit every day is, is, is crazy. It's just so hard to find because, um, you know, it's really, really tough to get to it. Cause if you, if you're motivated to do something, that means you're calling yourself out. If you're motivated to do something, that means you're actually got to answer the bell. And, um, you know, so I think that our, my job to motivate is to make sure that the, the, the player, the student athlete truly, truly understands that it's within them and that, um, the tragedy of, of failure or not being able to find that spot is not, that we failed. It's how close we were to finding it when we gave up. And that's the key guys. Um, it's, it's unbelievable what, what you can accomplish once you believe it. And my job was to get people to believe in something that might've been out of their realm of possibility in their mind, um, when they first started it. And, and, and sometimes you build expectations, uh, that are maybe, (laughs) unbelievable or unimaginable, but they're only unimaginable to people that don't have high standards. You know, it's ordinary to someone with an unbelievable amount of belief in themselves and motivation is truly ordinary and it may seem extraordinary to somebody else. And so, um, I motivated people, I think with, um, getting them to trust in themselves, trust in the fact that there's more in them than they believe there's in them and finding where that belief system is. And, um, Sometimes you, you you find things to read them, read some of these things, find something that happened in life. I was a big believer in having an 18 year old kid understand what a guy was doing 40 or 50 years ago, um, fighting for our country and defending our country and, and maybe being a prisoner of war, maybe being somebody that was defending the fort, whatever it may be. And, and letting guys know what a gift it is to be able to play the game of baseball. So, um, I mean, the first thing we did was try to change the mind because I don't think you can ever change the man until you change the mind. And once you change the mind, um, man, unimaginable things can happen. So I enjoyed that part of it, Butch. Um, I, I would just tell you that we did a lot of things um, that we're try- we, try- we tried to make uh, ordinary that other people thought were extraordinary, whether it was, you know, lifting at a certain time, going and seeing somebody, 
you know, we talk about being tired and talk about not wanting to run anymore. Maybe going to a children's hospital and seeing somebody that's missing a leg might, might motivate you a little bit to think that that day's not too tough. So, um, we, we did lots of things. It was an accumulation of a lot of people, but, uh, you know, you talked about a lot of wins. I can say that the players won them all. And, uh, I, I got to have a good seat. I can tell you that. That's, that's awesome. I, I was lucky enough to get you, get to watch you sit in that seat and, and manage and manage kids in today's game, Pat, uh, we got a lot of kids on here that are, you know, um, social media is playing a huge uh, part in their life right now because they're all, they're looking at what one another's doing uh, more than worrying about what they're doing themselves. What kind of advice could you give the young player today that's being recruited and the process? What would you tell him, that player? Well, I can just tell you that um, good coaches find good players. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of things that you can do to help yourself. And, 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 and there's a lot of things out there on social media that I think are a waste of time. There's also things that you have to be involved with. Obviously this particular mechanism we're using tonight is kind of funny. I was telling Butch guys, you guys would laugh, but I've never been on Twitter before, you know? So my SID would ask me, Hey, is it okay to send a shout out to Michael Conforto or Jacoby Ellsbury or say congratulations to the women's basketball team? So, um, I'm one of those guys that, um, I, I, I guess, was right between the throwback and the, and the modern player. Um, I think that's good because I think there's things in baseball that never need to change. And then I think there's things that should change. They're in flux all the time. Uh, one of those things you guys are dealing with is social media. And is social media good, bad, or indifferent? I don't know. Depends on how you use it, what you use it for. I just know a lot of things can be said that may not be accurate. I know that a lot of people can spend a lot of time following a lot of things. And when you think about this whole deal, guys, there's very few things in life that we all have the same as. Matter of fact, we don't, none of us have the same of anything other than one thing, and that's time. You know, from the very first breath you take to the very last breath you take, every one of us that's on this, this uh, thread tonight, whatever you call it, we all have one thing in common. Some of us are taller, some of us are shorter, some of us are um, faster, some of us are slower, but we all have 168 hours in a week. We all have the same amount of time. And the good thing about that is we get to decide how we use it. And I add that up all the time for our guys. And, and I always ask them if there's anything they couldn't accomplish if they had enough time to do it. And that's their, their answer would be, yeah, if I had more time. And I say, well, man, you're never going to have more time. You have the same amount of time as your opponent. Every day of the week, every hour of the day. Every second of the day, we all got 168 hours in a week. And it's how you manage it. And if you take 15 hours of school, guys, and you take 20 hours of practice and weights, and you take uh, 15, 56 hours of sleep, and you take 21 hours to give you for, for your meals, seven days a week, three hours, and you take 10 hours of social time, you got about 32 hours left in a week that you get to decide the difference between being good and being great. That 32 hours... I don't believe there's anything that you can't accomplish if you take that time and you manage it right. Just take half of it. Give 18 and go see your girl. Go do whatever you got to do, man. Take the other 18 and tell me something that you can't do. Just take five days a week. It's about three and a half hours. 
that you could do something. You may be the worst chemistry student. If you studied an extra two hours a day for 52 weeks, you'd ace it. There's no doubt. So time is something that, that we have the same amount of. Nobody has more time than you. There's no excuse when it comes to time. Social media is just another one of those things. When you get beyond what's good for you, that's a waste of time. And uh, when you waste time, there's only two things you can do with time. You can use time or you can waste time. And uh, the, the best players I ever coached really understood that. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the fact that there isn't a certain amount of talent that goes into this game. But I can tell you that on every team that I ever coached, on every team that ever had success, there was at least one player who was a walk-on, who wasn't talented enough if you just took out the five tools to play Division One baseball, but figured out how to motivate himself to use the time much, much better than his opponent, much, much better than the guy he was competing with, and, and took advantage of that, and it made him a player. And I don't know if there's a lot of sports, Division One sports at the, at, the, at the highest level. You know, football now, you've got to be – running a four three forty or weigh three hundred fifty pounds. Basketball you gotta be six foot fifteen, you know, um and ha or have a handle that's that's different. But in baseball, you can find a skill that you can do better than anybody else that can make you a contributor on team at a very high level. And I and I can tell you that our national championship team in two thousand six, our second baseman was a walk on he was National Defensive Player of the Year, drafted by the Yankees in the 19th round. I can tell you on our 2007 team, we had a walk-on that played and played every day, just about every day. I can tell you in 2018, we won a national championship, and we had three walk-ons in our starting lineup. One of those guys was due to an injury, but we would have had two guys that walked on, and both of those guys spent four years here, and both of those guys made themselves players, and they weren't – talented enough if you just look at the book to be playing in that situation but they're huge contributors and uh that's kind of a long explanation of what social media can or can't do for you butch but that's what i got that's really good pat i appreciate that that answer for these young guys let's talk about respect how do coaches get the respect of their players and teams when there are when guys first come to them, they don't know you. They're coming to your program. What are things that, how do you get the players respect? Well, I think respect is, is, is earned no matter where it is. Players earn respect. Coaches earn respect. Um, there's things that are, you know, there's street cred that goes along with winning. There's no doubt about it, but respect is earned. And usually it's, it's earned in the times of most adversity I always say that's where where respect is is earned and, and leadership is found in the times of most adversity. So I just think that if you're, if you're um, a coach that talks about putting in time and talks about putting in work ethic, you better do the same thing. I think if you're a player and you want your teammates to respect you, they better know that you're vested just like they are, um, regardless of where you are on the food chain as far as talent, you know, and I think that that's, something that's super cool when you talk about how you mesh as a team, you know, you talk about players that get respect or players that, that generally are guys that give back most to those guys around them. Um, my favorite 
part of coaching is watching people that are very, very high level elite players and convincing them that if they can make the guy with the least amount of talent on our team feel like he's as important as he is, we're going to have one hell of a team. And uh, those relationships go beyond baseball. You know, uh, like I said, sometimes when you're coaching, competitiveness is, is, is something that can be a detriment. It's also something that can be uh, very, very advantageous. But one thing I know is the relationships that are built are generally built through just that word respect and how someone respects their teammate. And I think respect goes off the field too, man. You know, I always talk about guys, you know, don't think you can be a leader and um, be doing one thing on the field and something different off the field. Um, You know, the little things guys are the big things. The little things are the big things. And, uh, and and there's no greater sport to, to do that and repeat yourself than the sport of baseball. And, I'll just tell you, I think it was Doc Rivers who was a basketball coach, still is, I think. But he always said, I believe it was him, he said, average players want to be left alone, good players want to be coached, and great players want to be told the truth. And the truth is that you're not going to be respected by your teammates unless you put in the effort, the work, and unless you get in the dirt with them. So um, I I just think that you got to be um, straight up. I think you gotta you got to earn respect. Awesome. Coach, let me ask you this now. Um, your practices when you were at Oregon State, what was the expectation level? And could you kind of go through how a day at Oregon State would be with you starting in the morning all the way through practice? Yeah, you know, the days would vary a little bit, you know, uh, because uh, obviously each the days you lift was different. But generally speaking, if at Oregon State, we would um, – we like to lift in the morning. I mean, I think that that's important. We like to lift early in the morning and, and I don't, I, I say early, I don't think it's too early. Um, we lift generally at six fifteen, and you know, there has been a time before that we had a guy question whether that was too early. So we moved it to five fifteen, and they found out that six fifteen was awesome. And, uh, we, we, we would start our day then, and then they'd go to a, to a, to which now, which is really, we, you know, we just didn't have that kind of stuff 15 years ago, but now you got team breakfast in the morning. So y'all go to breakfast together. And from there they'd go to class. And then generally speaking, sometime between 1215 and 115 uh, would be early time, which a guy uh, could come out and do anything he wanted to do on his own, whether it was in um, the cages, you know, we had uh, six, we had eight cages and six of those were indoors. He could get early work with defensively if he chose. He could just about do anything he wanted to do during that early work time. And then we'd practice. And, uh, you know, I think that if you're doing it right in practice, um, you can get that thing done in, in, in two and a half or less hours. I, I just think that when you get past that, sometimes, depending on the day, obviously, and where you're at in the season, uh, how deep you are into the season and what phase you are for us. There's always three phases of the season as far as practice, but – um, generally speaking, that's enough time. Uh, and we, and we'd have our practice after practice. Those guys would have a, a dinner, um, that they could go to. And then depending on where you're at academically, we'd have study hall. And, uh, you know, by that time, hopefully the guys wore out enough that he wants to go home, but I'm sure that they, I'm sure they went back to the department and, and, and played a little Xbox and had a little fun and did some things like that. Um, a lot of guys would come back at night, bang it in the cage. Um, 
you know, had, had two cages that were uh, in a different area and four in another area. And, and um, you know, they had plenty of space to get it done if they wanted. But uh, it's a full day. And um, obviously during the season it's different than it is in, in fall ball. And fall ball is different than winter training. And But, um, you know, most of the time that's what it looks like. Coach, when you look at players that you're going to put into your program, what what were the main thing? What were you looking for in pitchers? What were you looking for in infielders? What were you looking for in outfielders? What were you looking for in catchers? Well, Butch, you scouted for a long time. I was looking the same thing you're looking for, right? Left hand at 94 going downhill. And, uh, <laughs> right, running to 6 by 6 Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, um, I, I don't think it's a lot different, you know, than it is when you – um, you know, you, you, you're looking for guys with, with, with talent. You really are. But um, I think the one thing that separates college a little bit, for me anyway, it was, was a guy that could help us win. Um, there's a great example there. Stephen Kwan is a kid right out of there in the Bay Area there. And Stephen was undersized and, uh, and, and probably maybe a little bit of a late come on guy, but we really liked his energy in the game. You know, we, we saw him late. I think it was just before his senior year. Um, guy played with his hair on fire and um, and uh, might have been short here or there. Um, lacked a little bit of confidence and that kind of deal. But, man, brought some energy. And there was enough, obviously, there was enough baseball skill there that that we wanted to go on him and because uh, we really thought he fit into what we did as a team and how we played the game. And, and Stephen came and, and – uh, you know, took that energy and morphed it into just unbelievable work ethic, unbelievable commitment, unbelievable, and grew. You know, he, he he came in my office one time. He asked me why he wasn't playing every day. And I said, well, you know, you know why you're not playing every day. That's not a question for me. You know what you got to do to play every day. Whenever you start believing you're going to be as good as I think you're going to be, you're going to be damn good. And um, he ended up being a fifth rounder. Played in AAA last year after two years out. He's going to be a big league player. And this guy is tremendous baseball player. I mean, from every aspect of learned how to take pitches, uh, willing to bunt, defended. Uh, guys just loved him. I mean, he was infectious. So I don't think I've ever went to a ballpark and watched a guy walk around and, 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 and not show a lot of enthusiasm for the game or disrespect the game or kind of kind of looked like he was disinterested that I wrote down that I was really excited about him, you know, and maybe that guy was a lot of talent, but I've, I went to a lot of ballparks and saw a lot of guys that I said, you know what, um, this guy might be short for professional baseball. He might be short right now for someone's D one top, top talent list. But for me, I like what this guy brings for me, what this guy does to the game, how he influences the game, you know, uh, had a, had a outfielder named Jacoby Ellsbury and, Jacoby told me he wanted to be a first-round pick, and this was back in 2004, a long time ago. Jacoby could really run. I said, well, Jacoby, let me tell you something. To be a first-rounder, you got to drive your car like a first-rounder. you got to eat your breakfast like a first-rounder. you got to brush your teeth like a first-rounder. you got to act like a first-rounder. And you got to be able to influence the game when you don't get any hits. And we were playing up in Seattle, and uh, – and, uh, Theo Epstein came up. He was with the Red Sox to watch him play, and Lincecum was pitching for the for Washington. And I'll never forget uh, Jacoby laid down a drag and ran about a three eight down the first baseline, 
he got he got two hits in the series, but he scored on a single from first. We started him, and somebody hit a ball to the right of the right fielder, and he scored. He he influenced the game without having his best offensive weekend. He ended up being the first round pick for the Red Sox, and 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 uh, was an All Star and did some great things. But I think that that's the key for me when I go to a ballpark. I mean. I know there's a guy on here right now that, that, you know, you go look at a guy with tools and you look at a guy and you feel like, hey, man, if that guy ever physically gets to here, those are always things that, you know, sometimes injuries take you out of it. Sometimes, um, you know, uh, you, 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 you find things that, that may not get you, your guy where you want to get him or, or, or something like that. But a lot of times I love going and seeing guys that can influence the game the way we play the game and change the game. Uh, for us. And so um, I'm not any different than anybody else. Now I come down the highway and see you going 93, 94 and getting downhill pretty good. Um, you know, we're pretty excited about that, but, but um, you know, individuals win games and teams win championships. I can tell you that. And, and to be part of a team is something special. Well, you've got the experience and you've built so many winning teams Let's talk about pressure. You know, there's tons of pressure on these kids and and everything they do and every day. How do you as a coach deal with helping different personalities with pressure? Well, there's, you know, depends on what kind of pressure you're talking about. Now, if you're talking about the pressures of um, managing how you're a student athlete, how you get to the yard and, and, and take care of things academically. And a lot of guys are away from home and, you know, that kind of deal. That's, those are things that I think are, are, uh, you know, time takes care of most of those things. If, if, if they're allowed to um, let it happen, um, you know, but pressure itself for me, as far as when you look at pressure, um, as far as performance, for me, I always say, tell guys pressure is a privilege. Because if you're under pressure, that means you're a, you're a real guy and we're in a real game. Because nobody goes to a game where there's 25 people and, and the two teams are playing for last place. There's no pressure. And there's no pressure if you're hitting 200. You know, there's pressure, I guess, if you're going to try to – you're close to winning the batting title. There's pressure if you're going to get the chance to go to Omaha. And like I said, pressure is a privilege. And when you create pressure in how you prepare – it just becomes that it becomes a privilege. I, I loved chaos in practice. I loved pressure. I love to push the envelope. And, um, you know, I think that practices for coaches and games are for players. And, um, if you do what you preach, you can do in practice, or you believe in what you're doing in practice and you get to the game, you got to let them play. I mean, if they've done what you've asked them to do, then you got to let them play. And, uh, if guys don't, play at a level of which you feel like that they should be playing, then there's only two people to look at. One's a player and one's yourself. And uh, sometimes you got to adjust how you, you, you motivate the player, how you get to the player. And sometimes the player has to um, figure out that he's got to look in the mirror and find out if he's the guy that's letting some of those pressures get to him. But I think that uh, pressure to me is, um, uh, the bigger the game, the, 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 the better the challenge, the funner it is. Um, you know, we create pressure in practice all the time, whether we have uh, infield drills with your eliminated 
if you if you boot the ball, whether we go line drive drill and and uh, and you get a ball in the air that you're eliminated, whether we go bunt drill and you got to get five down in a row or you're eliminated, whatever it may be, um, you know you create pressure scenarios and it, and it becomes just that. It becomes a privilege, man. And um, I, I don't know anybody that likes playing in games where there's no pressure. That's a good point. Great point. Coach, hitting. You were a, a successful hitter that played up to AAA, I want to say. Is That's that correct? correct. I got something right. I listened to you for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to these young hitters, uh, you know, from approach – to using the whole field to, you know, there's so much stuff in launch angle and different theories on hitting, which is great. You know, everybody does it differently, but what, what were the things, I mean, you guys had very successful teams. You guys pitched really well. You played defense really well and you hit in timely fashion. What, what were the things that you really concentrated on to help guys get better? Are you talking about from an offensive standpoint right now? Yeah, yeah totally offensive from a hitting standpoint. Yeah, well, you know, I think everybody has a unique swing. I really do. Um, and, I, and I never want to take – I always say it would be kind of foolish for me to come and recruit you and tell you I'm going to teach you how to hit, you know. And so um, I think that there – I think what you want them to do is get better because I think there's some absolutes in hitting. For me, um, an absolute is you have to have – you, you, you have to have a balanced uh, uh, starting point. You know, you have to have good vision. You have to uh, have at foot strike. You, you need to be, you need to be ready to launch. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm a, I was a guy that always believed in, in hitting from the ground up. I believe in lower half hitting. Um, I believe that Trevor Larnick's going to swing the bat different than Michael Conforto and Michael Conforto different than, than um, Nicky Madrigal and, and Nicky different quantity, but each one of them at foot strike has to be in a position to be as ballistic to the ball as, as, as their anatomy allows them. I think launch angle is a result of being in that position and being on time. I don't think that um, anybody that tries to create launch, launch angle for me, uh, someone would have to show me how to do that because I, I was never a guy that tried to create launch angle. I think launch angle is is a direct result of the of the that individual's anatomy, how he gets into rotation. And if you are if you are balanced at foot strike, you got a chance to get into rotation. You know everything in hitting from the time that you're 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 gearing in, you're locking in on the guy on the mound is 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 linear until you get into rotation, right? And then it becomes rotational. As soon as foot strike hits, then it becomes rotational. Everything before that's linear. So you're in a straight line to the pitcher, you're balanced. And I'm okay with you being a little bit open. I'm okay with you being a little bit closed. That's okay at foot strike. We want you to be in line. We want you to be on time. And we want you to be in a position that you can be as ballistic to the ball as you can. Uh, play coverage. You know, everybody's a little bit different. Some guys like to get on. Some guys like to get off. You know, people talk about the college game, having an aluminum bat and having a little bit more leeway on the outer edge. Probably true. Um, one thing we did is we hit with wood all fall. Uh, always used wood. Everybody knew how to hit with, with wood. I think that when you get into professional baseball, I, I always – I never dreamed 
you know, back when I started playing college baseball in 1978, you didn't even have a weight on it. it just said B3. You know, I, didn't, I don't know what B3 is. Just give me. It's green. I'll hit it. You know what I mean? And, and you had Tennessee Thumper and you had an Easton. There was five bats for, you know, 15 guys. And um, uh, so I didn't know a whole lot about um, anything other than that. But I tell you, when I got to professional baseball, there is no question that you find out in a hurry where the sweet spot is. And um, I was one of those guys who was fortunate enough when I was in the Padres organization that Tony Gwynn was a year behind me, but he didn't think he needed the minor leagues like the rest of us. And um, anyway, I'd go over there and listen, watch him. And I say, listen, because I meant this. He'd take, we were in Yuma, Arizona, and uh, we'd go over there and he'd take BP. And you could turn your head and you could tell when Tony was hitting by the sound of the ball coming off his bat. And um, I, I don't think it's any different. You know, we just had a 1-1 two years ago, Adley Rutschman, who came in and hit 178 uh, left-handed as a freshman and 278 right-handed. And um, he ended up uh, being a 1-1. I think he hit 410 or something his, his sophomore year, drove in 80-some runs, hit 15 home runs, broke the college World Series record for most hits, most RBIs. And, and I'm telling you, that you could turn your head on him as well and, and you know when he was hitting. And that's because at foot strike, he was so balanced. His hands were over his power slot. I called your power slot for your backside. And, man, he, he never let the hands get ahead of hip rotation. You know, the hips led the hands. And when you do that, you're able to take pitches, but you're also able to get to get to the ball and you're able to hit from the backside into the front side. And um, – his launch angle worked just perfect, and we never talked about launch angle one time. I think he hit, I don't know, Larnick hit 18, I think, his, his junior year, and that was Rutch's sophomore year, and Rutch might hit 15, I don't know. And we never talked about launch angle at all. I, I just know when, when they left the bat, they were launched pretty good. So um, my deal, if I was a hitter and I needed to work on something, the very first thing that I would do is I would always work on the tee because that key, the ball isn't moving. That's the only time you can really work on something in baseball where it's not moving, but it gets you consistent as to where you want to go and how you want to attack the baseball. But for sure, guys, the one thing I tell um, our players, a couple things I tell our players when they show up, but one of the things I tell them is there's three things about hitting, and I want you to make sure that you write these down because these are the three most important things about hitting. And number one is attitude. And number two is attitude. And number three is attitude. Those are the three most important things about hitting. And I'm just telling you, if you're standing on the ditch and you're a bitch, that guy on the mound knows it. And I guarantee if you don't come off and somebody, and somebody hangs you a breaking ball up and in and you don't come off or somebody throws you 94, 95 and you don't flinch, he knows it. And so um, you're going to imp impose your will on that pitcher every time you get in the box. And uh, we played uh, we played a team in our conference one time. And their starter was going to go 94 to 96. So I told our leadoff guy, I want you to take the first pitch. I don't care if it's a ball or strike. And then I want you to move up in the box towards the pitcher. I want you to move a good 8, 10 inches. And after the second pitch, I want you to move up in the box 8, 10 inches. Because you're going to set the tone for the rest of the hitters and for him knowing we ain't afraid of you. And that was the attitude that I was talking about. We'll let the hits come when they come. But um, uh, hitting, is, is, hitting is a mindset. Now, you gotta, now don't get me wrong now. You've got to get strong. 
you got to work on things and you got to work on it a lot. I've never had one of our best hitters ever. Butch, remember a guy we had, we had a guy named Chris Wakeland played in the big leagues for Detroit. I, I had him at George Fox my last year there. I used to go pick him up. He didn't have him. His parents left him with his grandparents. So his grandparents raised him. I used to go pick him up, bring him to school uh, every day. And this guy, I said, Chris, you can hit in the big leagues. And this guy got drafted by a guy named Dave Roberts his senior year, and he played in the big leagues. And this guy, I'm telling you that if he was, he was like a dairy farmer. He was hitting at 3 in the morning, hitting at 3 in the afternoon, you know, just like you milked them cows. He never quit. And uh, he had talent now. But that desire and that passion and that will to hit was whew, was was electric. And then when you get a guy like Rutch who does that too, man, I said, Rutch, I got to flip the lights off, man. I got to I got to turn the lights off. You know, they're burning up the electric bill. You're in here all the time. But if you want to be good, you got to spend the time. You really do. Pat, so that's great stuff on the hitting. Can you go over pitching with us? What you you know, guys that you're trying to get to be able to throw off timing, what was things that you guys at Arizona, at Oregon State would, would you know, bear down on, and what would you want in your pitchers well, you'll get as a, far as those types of things? You'll get a kick out of this, Butch, because you know me really well, but the best thing I did with pitching is hire a good pitching coach, you know. So I, I didn't have a lot of patience, you know, when I first started coaching. I don't know if I had a lot when I got done coaching, but – um, what I always tell pitchers, listen, you get them out and come on in the dugout and sit down next to me between other than that, you know, uh, no, uh, pitching is a lot like, you know, there's no different when I'm talking about the attitude of a hitter. We, we tried to instill that too, but I, I do, I do really mean that I trusted my pitching guys to do a lot. Uh, our theory in pitching most of the time was to, um, I, and I don't, I don't think it's any different than a lot of guys, but I mean, you pitch off your fastball. We did anyway. We always felt like we needed to establish being able to throw a fastball on both sides of the plate. We felt like we needed to be able to change speed was more than one pitch. We didn't feel like we needed to try to really um, fool people with a lot of arms we had at the end. I mean, you're talking about Jace Fry, big ligger, Andrew Moore, big ligger, um, you, you name it. We, we had a lot of them. Um, you probably remember a guy named Dallas Buck, Butch. I think you were still scouting then, you know, uh, but yep. yeah, filthy movement. Now, Movement is something I think can be taught a little bit. I do. I think that everybody can get, put some pressure on a seam, get outside the ball, make the ball run. I think you can get the ball to sink. I think that depending on the whether whether you're a power arm guy or whether you're a guy that has to do that, for us anyway, that kind of determined what level we wanted to take that to. Um, one thing that I always drove our pitching coaches crazy with in the fall um, and until you could command your changeup, we would make you throw it. Even when they knew it was coming, we would actually tell them it's coming. Uh, cause when they hit that thing, 400 miles, you start learning how to get it to go where you want it to go. It's kind of a different deal, but, um, it, it really worked. Um, I, I think that for a lot of people, the changeup is a third pitch and either the sliding or breaking ball is a second pitch, um, which was okay. But I think that if you're going to pitch at a high level, you got to be able to throw one of your secondary pitches for a strike and a fastball count. Um, I, I just think that that's imperative. Um, I think that uh, driveline is out there now. A lot of guys are using driveline. And I think that uh, uh, there's some stuff that can get you, depending on your age, where you're at development-wise, because there's a lot of things that work. You know, you just want to make sure that um, – 
you know, you're developing from, you know, small muscle mass to large muscle mass. We love looseness in our pitchers. Um, but I had great pitching coaches, you know, uh, coach Yeski was our pitching coach, uh, the last 10 years I was there. I had coach Spencer before that. Um, you know, I had, I just had, had a lot of, a lot of guys that I thought did a good job of handling pitching staff. Um, you know, we like to have, like anybody, like to have some diversity in the staff where you could come and spend somebody once in a while, uh, it, you know, especially if you're following, following a power arm. But um, we, uh, as, a, as, a, as a philosophy at Oregon State, and, and, you know, I know you guys weren't even born then, but the, the conference became a whole in 1999 where they combined the entire Pac-10, now it's Pac-12, but there was no way we could win the game without shrinking the game. And, um, you know, nobody really wanted – there was only three teams in the North. There was Washington, Washington State, and Oregon State. Oregon didn't have baseball when we joined, but nobody in the South wanted us to join. And I, and I think that's fair, man. I mean, I think that that was, that was a hard thing for them to think that they, they were going to expand their conference. But we, you know, bats are minus five. We just weren't going to win unless we shrank the game. And so after the 99 season, um, when we got our brains beat out, I said our philosophy is going to be – we're going to pitch and get ahead, and then we're going to suffocate you with defense. And um, when you start pitching and defending, you win. And when you win, better players come. And that defender that you were getting becomes a better defender and offensive player. And so from 2005, 2004, whatever it may be, we went to the World Series in 05. Um, we won three national championships and won more Pac-12 championships than anybody, more national championships than anybody. And I can tell you that that philosophy never changed. It never changed. And it did exactly what we thought it would do. When you pitch and defend, you can manage the game. You can't manage the game when you're down six runs. You just got to hope somebody gets on and hits four-run homer, right? You know, you know, we were looking for a grand slam, three-run down, something in the gap. But when, you're, when, you, when you pitch and defend, you can manage. You, and, and that's the beauty of the college game. You know, you want to be diverse in what you can do. If a team can't defend, then you, then you start runners and you buy it. If a team's velocity oriented and they can't spin, you, you're going to, you're going to get a lot more long balls. So, um, you know, we really our pitching uh, Butch was as you know um, just got nothing but better and better. And uh, I think it, it's crazy in 2017 that we went to the World Series. We we're 54 and four, and we had two guys with the RAs uh, under two starters. So um, I give them a lot of credit. Yeah, that was unbelievable. You've had some, you've had some great players. They grew into great players. So let, this leads to my next question for you. There's been many guys that have come to you that were not considered out of high school to be really good type of draft picks, and then they came to you, and then you developed them into first round type picks. Can you tell us what what are the things that you do when you're building a player? What like how do you build a guy to be a dude like you have? Well, I think first of all that that it, you know I want to give the credit to the player because I think that that like I said at the beginning that unimaginable potential that lies within each and every one of us, and it doesn't just have to be baseball; it's in life too. You know the potential that lies within us that we never get to is that fear of failure in my opinion it's that fear of what i have to do to get there 
and what it's going to curtail. And so until you change the mind, you can't change the belief system. And once you change the belief system, then you take guys that believed at one time that they were making a sacrifice by doing things like running or lifting weights or swinging extra or getting up early. And they find out that that's not a sacrifice at all. That's just an opportunity. That's an unbelievable opportunity. Can you imagine the people that would love to get out of bed that can't get out of bed? Can you imagine the people that have never seen the light of day being asked to get up early and hit when, and getting in a dark cage and hitting and saying it's too cold? You know, so you flip that mind, you, you flip that attitude, you, you flip that belief system that, that well, at one time I thought was a sacrifice is truly an opportunity. And when you flip that, you can't believe what that, that individual can do. It, it's, it's like a, it's like a, a set and sail, you know, when that thing catches wind and it starts rolling, man, all of a sudden what you once believed was work is now absolute joy. You love doing it and, and you find a reason and a passion to do it. You can transform a guy into just about anything that he, he, he allows you to do. And, and, and talent helps. There ain't no damn way of getting out of that. I, I'm telling you, but I, I, I'm going to tell you, Kyle Novak started in left field for me and against Arkansas in the 2018 World Series, and Jack Anderson started in center field, and, and uh, Zach uh, Taylor started at first base. And I'm telling you, if I was recruiting at George Fox College, I probably would have just taken one of them. And, uh, but all three of those guys, all three of those guys had a mind – that, that just would never surrender that they weren't good enough to do something. And therefore that hidden ability that lies in with each and every one of us manifested itself to their ceiling and everybody can contribute in this game. And, um, you know, you might have a guy that can't run, then he better be able to do a whole, whole bunch of other things really, really well. And you might have a guy that doesn't have a lot of power. He better be able to handle the bat. And, and all these things in baseball, you can do in a lot of sports you couldn't get away with. But baseball, you can develop a skill if you repeatedly and repetitiously do it over and over and over. And I'll tell you, people that win routinely and regularly outwork their opponent day in and day out. I, I, just, I, I just tell you that. And the tragedy, like I said, isn't that someone fails. It's that nobody's ever taught them how to succeed. That's, that's the real tragedy because people, it's not that people that fail want to fail. They fail because they don't know how to succeed. <laughs> and once you, once you get them on there, and, and I've made a lot of mistakes with, with, with players sometimes not getting to get to, the, to them understanding why I'm doing certain things that could get them to another level. You get better at that. Um, you feel like you wish you could never um, – made a mistake with any player or you, you wish you had better community. One of my problems when I first started coaching, I didn't have good communication skills. I thought guys should know how to do this or know how to do that. You know, I had, I'm like a player. I'd learn all the time. You learn from your players and um, everything in life, you either read or you experience it. Uh, if, if you're going to know something and, and, and I'll tell you that um, this journey that we're on in baseball, this journey we're on in life, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm telling you that when you try to fix all the distractions and you try to fix all the, the ups and downs in the journey, you ruin the destination. And that's one of the problems we have in society today. Nobody wants to see somebody 
get knocked on their ass. They want to pick them up before they ever hit the ground. And what they don't realize is when they're on the ground and they get off the ground by themselves, that's the first step towards that manhood that we're talking about, a climbing that mountain that nobody thinks they can climb. And we certainly need to help everybody keep from failing. But I'm telling you that your greatest successes are going to be found in some of your toughest failures and some of your toughest defeats if you allow yourself to, to respond to that. And uh, because there's real no there's no failure if you have average expectations. There's no failure. That's what society right now is kind of breeding into us a little bit. Hey, man, just be average. It's OK. Go down the street. The number one enemy to greatness is good. Walk down the street right now. Ask somebody how they're doing. No matter who they are, they're going to tell you good. Right. Well, the difference between great and good, there's a big gap. And, man, the great get to the top. And, but but if, if you're not willing to fail a little bit, and if we try to fix all the issues, like I said, on the journey and, and patch everybody up before they, before they have a little failure, you know, we're going to ruin that destination. And so um, I just think that it's this, this coaching thing, man, it's, it, it's, it's fun, but it's also should be. Just like being a parent, at times it's difficult, man. It's, it's Sometimes it's difficult. But you start from the ground up, man. You start right there with that guy in the dirt, man. And and, and you talk about – I've never known a person to ask them how, if they, what kind of player they want to be that didn't tell them they want to be real, real good. None of them tell me they want to be average. None of them tell me they don't want to be very good. They tell me they want to be real, real good. Then you got to say, okay, how are we going to get there? And I always tell guys, you want to know, you want to know the answer to how to figure out 98% of your problems? And, the, and of course, the answer is, of course I do. I said, well, go buy a mirror and put it on your front door. And, and when you go out the door in the morning, look in it and, and tell yourself what you got to do today to be the player you said you wanted to be. When you come in the door at night, go back and shut the door and look in the mirror and answer the guy looking at you. You'll know whether you got it done. And um, that that's fun stuff, man. That's that's that's, that's how, awesome. you that, that's that's, how you get that that's how you get that dog fire, man. It is really good. Hey, coach, when you if a kid came up to you and he only got to meet you one time, and he asked you if you could give me advice, baseball and life, what would you say to that kid? Well, I think I would tell him the same thing I tell most of the guys that, that, that come here, man. You have potential in you that, that, that can reach levels that you never dreamed they could reach. You're just going to have to push yourself. You're going to have to be honest with yourself. And you're going to have to let us tell you the truth. And um, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't even imagine uh, what you can look like in three years. I can't imagine what you're going to look like in four years. But what's really important? is the kind of man you're going to be in five years. And your parents are going to tell you what's really important is what kind of man you are in 10 years when you're bringing them grandkids home. So um, I, I, I just think they go hand in hand. I think, I think being, being a guy on the field, being a guy off the field, it's hard. Never really known a lot of guys um, that had sustained success that tried to be something different on the field uh, as off the field. I, you know, be authentic, man. We make mistakes. Be truthful, um, but man, be a man, and and, uh, and 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 be accountable for what you say you want to be, and and you know that's the one thing that's hard, man. The one thing that's hard is admitting that you're wrong, and, and that's hard for a coach too. And there's times I've been wrong. There's times I've been with players, and 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 you're either competitive, and you wish you would have patted them on the tail instead of kicked them in the tail. You wish you would have 
uh, told them at the end of practice something different, you know, but you got to come back the next day and say, hey, man, we're going to do this better. But um, I would just tell you, uh, don't don't ever put limits on yourself. Don't ever don't ever put limits on yourself. You know, for most of your life, people try to tell you you're too young. And for the second half of your life, they try to tell you you're too old. Right. But, you know, Tiger Woods, I think he broke 50 for nine holes of golf at three years old. And I think Anne Frank wrote her diary at 13. And I think uh, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney started the Beatles at 15. And I think Bill Gates uh, Gates, uh, co-founded Microsoft at 19. And I think Joe DiMaggio had a 56-game hitting streak at 26. And I think Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence at 33. And I also think that Ben Franklin um, had been at the bifolds at 79. And Arichi Araya climbed Mount Fuji at 100. So don't let anybody tell you you're too young. Don't let anybody tell you you're too old. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't be something that is so far beyond anybody else's imagination because you're the only guy that controls that. That's what I'd tell them. That's awesome. And I believe That's it. Great. And I believe That's it, man. Great. I believe it. No, you live it. Well, I and believe you, it. I don't believe it because I, I see it. I, I see totally... Stephen Kwan. I see Nick Madrigal's 5'6", 165 pounds. You know? I mean, the guy's yeah. the guy the guy said, Coach, I'm a first rounder. It's the only way I got him. He told me he was a first rounder. So when he got drafted later, he was gonna sign. I said, Well, Nick, you told me you're a first rounder. And they ain't giving you first round money. They didn't draft you in the first round. You come to Oregon State, you got a chance to be a first rounder. And uh of course he did. He was the fourth pick in the country, five, six, 170 pounds. And that guy was tenacity, man. You hitting ground balls and, and by the time you got done, he'd bring you another bucket. So it's in there, man. Every one of you guys should, should, you know, the, the thing about dreams is if you don't wake up and act on them, um, they don't happen because everything great in this world, everything great in history has been built by people of possibility, people that dreamt it first and then acted upon those dreams, man. And uh, I heard that from a guy named Kelly, Matthew Kelly. And uh, he's right. Uh, it's, 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 it's awesome when you, when you see guys uh, uh, blossom into something that's uh, uh, just exactly the, the, the picture that they, that they wanted to see when they, when they walked in the door and, and when they walked out the door. It's awesome. Okay, so I want to go to now. I have a couple questions. Guys had uh, texted me. Uh, just so everybody knows, tonight I'm not uh, accepting requests to to get the mic. Uh, if you have a question that you want answer, you know you want to ask Coach, please uh, just send it to me. Uh, you know through the instant messenger, and I will try to uh, ask Coach the question. Coach, this is, question is actually from another college coach. What did you feel like was your biggest failure as a coach and your biggest regret? Well, my biggest failure as a coach was that I I wish that I could have uh, reached every player. I wish I never made a mistake with any players. I wish that, um, um, you know, I could have uh, been more um, – patient enough early especially early early in coaching to to uh, get to know the player better uh my biggest regret um man i don't know what my biggest regret is uh probably uh probably that <laughs> i don't know man that's that's a tough one man uh 
I, I, I don't know if it's, it, it, I don't think it's that I stopped coaching, but I do think there's some regret in, um, in, uh, maybe how, how quickly I had to make that decision. Um, uh, you know, we got back from the world series, uh, you know, in July and pretty much had to make that decision by the end of August. And, uh, uh, that might be a regret that I didn't have more time or I didn't take more time um, to view the, the whole thing. It's good. Great. I mean, every, everybody's got regrets and uh, I mean, if we start talking about regrets all day, we'd be here all night. Um, but what you've done with, with your teams is just incredible. Can you talk about Omaha a little, <laughs> just the, the energy and, what players did in Omaha that was maybe a little bit out of their skin? Yeah. You know, uh, first of all, I, you know, I'm going to go back and talk about, uh, in 1998, I wish that uh, people would have realized how good Butch probably remembers, but we had a club in 1998 when we were not a whole conference. And so, um, but the South, uh, gave us a chance to play nine games against Southern teams that wouldn't count on our record. So we got to play Arizona and they were 10th in the country and we swept them. We got to play UCLA and we swept them. And then we went down to USC and we won one of three. So we went seven and two. And after the USC series, uh, Mike Gillespie, who I, I just absolutely admire, uh, he was a mentor to me. He's passed away, bless his soul, was one of the toughest. Uh, he was, there were two coaches in particular. He was one of the toughest coaches I ever had to coach against. You had to be prepared for everything. But he told me in 98 that if you guys get to a regional, I think you can get to the World Series. Well, we didn't even get to go to a regional. And lo and behold, in um, 2000, I think it was, or 2001, um, we lost to Pryor, Mark Pryor, on Friday night. We shut them out on Saturday, and we lost one to nothing on Sunday. We had to win two or three to go. So Mike and I had a great relationship, and he told me, he said, Case, when you get to Omaha, you will not believe what it's like. And I thought to myself, when I get to Omaha, man, you just, you know what I mean? I just lost, I needed one run to get, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I was, I was down, man. And in 2005, lo and behold, we win the conference. We beat them at the last series of the, of the, of the season at Goss Stadium in Corvallis. It was a crazy game, crazy amount of people. And they go down and win their regional at, Long Beach, we win ours at home, and guess what? We got to play them in Supers to go to the World Series. So um, we we won in three. We won the first game. They won the second game. We won the third game. Um, and he said to me after the game, and I just, now, this is how classic guy he was. He said, Coach, he said, I wanted to go so bad, I, you can't believe it. They won the national championship in 98 that year that we played. He said, but if I couldn't go, I'm so glad you guys could go because I got so much respect for your players. I just thought that was so cool. And when we got to Omaha, and um, first of all, you land there, uh, you know, on the tarmac, there's a bus waiting for you. They pick you up. You, you, it's just like he told me. It was just, uh, it was almost like fairy tale stuff. And um, the first day you get to go there, you have a press conference and you get to practice. And I just never forget walking through that tunnel and out the dugout, stepping on the first, on the field at Rosenblatt. And I just, I just thought to myself, man, this is, this is just, I can't even tell you what it, what it felt like to be someone that got to, to do that and have the players 
are the guys that took me there. They're the ones that won the game. They're the ones that got me there. But to be there is the most humbling experience of my college coaching career. I, I, I honestly shed a tear just thinking about the time, the effort that it took and the belief it took to get guys to believe we could do it and actually doing it and watching them. It just, it was unbelievable to watch them be able to, to play. Um, the first year we were there, uh, we played, we lost to the number one seed uh, three to two, I think it was. And then we got beaten extra innings. So we were two and out. And uh, my little uh, closer who had 20 saves that year or 18 or something, he said in the press conference, I guarantee you we'll be back next year. So I thought, oh, man, Gundy, thanks, you know. And um, we came back the next year, lost to Miami the first game. And I knew we just needed to win a game because I knew we were good enough. And uh, we got beat by Miami uh, 11 to 1. Uh, opening game, one game, two, got the monkey off our back. And uh, then that, that, that presence I'm talking about, that attitude, because we, we had Miami in game three, and we stoned them in game three. I think we beat them nine to one. Uh, took Rice, beat Rice twice. They didn't score in 18 innings. We beat them, shut them out twice. We had to beat them twice. Um, and uh, it was phenomenal. You know, went to the championship series against North Carolina, lost game one. Uh, one game, two and three, and we're national champions. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm like I said, I'm so fortunate and blessed. I got to play in both of them. I got to win a championship at Rosenblatt. I got to win a championship at Ameritrade. Uh, it's it's incredible what they do for you. Uh, motorcade to the game, just 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 super cool, man. And to see guys, just to see guys talk about for the rest of their life what the experience was of playing in Omaha and the bond you build with your teammates. And, um, that's the other thing, guys, you know, we talk about all the talent and all the, you know, you go to college and you play on a team and that's a real team. And you can have relationships with those guys the rest of your life. And, uh, if you get to Omaha, that that's a hundredfold, a uh, hundred times more, uh, than if you don't, it's just incredible feeling. And like I said, it's the most humbling experience I've ever had in my coaching career. Case? Yo. Hello. Yeah, you still there? I'm here. I don't know if you can hear me. Oh, okay, now I can hear you. Okay. But anyway. I okay, don't... so hey, let me, let me, let's, let's finish this up. Um, we go an hour and you've been, this has been unbelievable with your time. If there is one thing, there's a lot of young players on this call that, you know, think they're putting in the time that they have to, to, to find greatness. Um, if there's something that we haven't talked about tonight that matters to you, that you would want a young player to know, what, what would that be? coach well i think there's there's a lot of depends on how young the player is too man you know i mean i i think that there's a part of um enjoying the game that 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 has to be you know you really got to enjoy what you're doing you know i mean if you're going to the yard because someone's forcing you to go to the yard you got to ask yourself why you know but if you really do want to pursue this game and you really do have a passion for this game just just write a couple things down that you want to accomplish. And if you're 
willing to put it in an envelope and keep it somewhere that only you know, then open that envelope every once in a while and read what you wrote down that you wanted to do and what you wanted to become and ask yourself, am I doing what it takes to do that? And there could be a lot of things, but I think that, that, that when you're at the yard, I mean, we have, we have, we have fun. We're at yard with, you know, we, heck guys come out, throw the football around guys, do some things like that. But when, but when we start practicing, you know, we get after it pretty good, but, but I, but I really do believe that you have to make a commitment to what you want to do. And that has to come from you. And if, if mom or dad wants you to be a baseball player and you want to be a basketball player, be a basketball player. If mom or dad wants you to be a football and a baseball player and you say, man, I just really want to be a baseball player. Tell them, you know, and, uh, I, I love the guys that played more than one sport. I, I, I leave that completely up to the, to the kid, but I just think you got to enjoy it. I think that there's, there's a difference between being 17 years old and being 12 years old. I think that you have to make a commitment to what you want to do. And I think you have to be accountable to the commitment. And, um, you know, sometimes we're all guilty of this. We think we're doing a lot more than, than we really are doing. I mean, there, there's, the good Lord gave us a body that can withstand about anything. It's the mind you got to convince. And, uh, you know, I'm just telling you that, like I told you before, I've never known a guy that's left our program that had a lot of success at a high level that didn't put in a lot of time. And it takes time uh, in this particular sport to be repetitious in everything you do. Um, some guys are gifted with a lot more height. Some guys are gifted with a little bit more speed. Some guys are gifted with a little more strength. Some guys develop a little earlier than others. Don't be afraid of that. You know, don't be afraid of that. But if you say, I want to be the best defensive player in the, in the state of California, or the state of Washington, or the state of Oregon, or the state of Nevada, or I want to be, then, then if that's what you want to do, let's find out what you're willing to do to do it and, and make yourself accountable. And, um, but, um, you know, uh, I, I always tell her, guys, you know what? Call home this weekend. Tell your parents you love them. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, make sure that you're cer- certainly respectful for the gift you've been given to do this. Awesome. Pat, thank you for your time. Love, this was such an honor for you to be on this, this, uh, in this forum. And for these kids to hear you, um, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. And I thank you for your time. No, it was good, man. Thank you guys. Merry Christmas. Uh, get after it, man. I hope I see you guys on the diamond somewhere tearing it up, man. Thanks, Butch. Thanks coach.